The worst person I can be is the one I create based on what I think you think of me. These are the words of a badass in a white lab coat. It is impressive that Dr. Nicole Labor got through medical school and passed her boards while doing so secretly as an addict. When finally sober, she then turned what she learned into a manuscript for the incredible book, The Addictaholic Deconstructed. But you know, for me, it was hearing her speak of coming to this one realization that moved her into solemn badass status. Think about it. The worst person you can be is the one you create based on what others think of you. Dr. Labor joins me on this podcast to talk about her journey, her continual recovery, and why saying fuck a lot can be cleansing and beneficial. That's up next on Recovery Talks, the podcast. From the birthplace of modern recovery, Akron, Ohio, welcome to Rock and Recovery. Recovery Talks, the podcast dedicated to sharing stories and amplifying the voices of those on the front lines in the recovery movement. Our commitment to you to always deliver straight up sober talk with the sincere promise of a safe stigma and judgment free zone. Recovery Talks right now. Welcome everybody to this week's episode of Recovery Talks, the podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lee Shannon. And today I'm here with Dr. Nicole Labor, and I am so honored that you're here. Thank you so much for joining me and taking time to do this. A little bit about Dr. Labor, because I got to do this out front, right? I got I to talk about all the stuff you've done, right? So Dr. Labor graduated from the Pennsylvania State University with a Bachelor of Science degree in Biobehavioral Health. She attended and graduated medical school in Erie, Pennsylvania at the Lake Erie College of Osteopathic Medicine. She completed a residency in family practice at the State University of New York in Buffalo, New York, followed this by a fellowship in addiction medicine through Geisinger in Northern Pennsylvania. She is currently the medical director at 180, a treatment center that offers inpatient and outpatient chemical dependency and behavioral health services in Worcester, Ohio. I did not say Worcester, Worcester, Ohio. Dr. Labor is also a medical director for the Interval Brotherhood Home, a residential treatment facility in Akron, Ohio, as well as the Esper Treatment Center in Erie, Pennsylvania. We're keeping it here real as Martin the dog is barking in the background because bad guys are coming to my front door. So um, <laughs> this is the real deal. So welcome, Dr. Labor, to Recovery Talks, the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, thanks for being here. So I just talked a little bit offline about how we had met and I had seen her at a, one of her presentations, and I was just stunned by the clarity of what it was she was talking about, and later read her book, and um, we're going to talk a little bit about the book as we go through, but you know, you're a badass man, and uh, I know of you through, I of course spent my time in detox at St. Thomas, and so we didn't meet there, even though we couldn't probably talk about it. Up until March was a volunteer uh, taking a sober message up there every Monday night at 7 p.m. and did that for four straight years. If there's one thing I can tell you that the pandemic has done to me that I, I don't dig is that I don't get to do that anymore because that was the one place where I could walk out and I could feel, thank God, that I get to get in a car and go home to a nice warm bed and be sober and to be able to feel normal if normal can be described as anything that we go through in recovery. Up in those halls, you are considered like, you know, just really, really well regarded. You shine up there. And everybody I talk to says, have you talked to her? Have you talked to her? It's like, she's a badass. I'm like, yeah, I know. I saw her deal. 
I guess what I want to talk about, you know, with you is, I mean, obviously the the Addictaholic Deconstructed is a, is a fantastic book that I recommend for everybody. But how do we get here? I mean, tell me what it was like. I mean, we talked a little bit about this beforehand, but what was it like before you got sober? What was your life like? What were you like? What was Nicole like? I mean, my entire life has been uh, spent feeling like I have imposter syndrome. So even with my addiction, I, I almost feel that way because, you know, I, on paper, I, it looks good. My, my childhood was mm. happy. I had a good family. You know, my parents were divorced, but they got along. And yeah. so like externally, I was very popular, you know, I was, I was voted most popular. And then I was the prom queen. Like I, you know, my life looked very um, good. But I think that ultimately that's because I was the master of illusion without knowing it. I mean, I, don't, I think that we're much better at things when we do them subconsciously um, versus when we try to like involve our conscious you know, minds. But um, I think my whole life was really about creating some sort of illusion. I wanted to be viewed as a certain X, Y, or Z, depending on who it was and what it was about. So you know, as a child, I like to be, I faked being sick every day in kindergarten because I got extra attention from the teacher. And then I got to go to the nurse and, you know, it took my mother saying to the nurse, like, don't call me unless she's got a fever or is like actively vomiting. Mm. And, and I even think there were times where I would like fake, like try to make myself vomit just because I, I wanted the attention so badly. But at home, I wanted to create a different illusion at home to my family. I wanted to be this like, strong, smart, imaginative, creative, like all the adjectives that people would use to describe me. I think that internally, I subconsciously, whatever, I felt like I had imposter syndrome. Like they think that I'm all these things and I don't feel like I am these things. So I need to continue to create an image of myself that upholds these beliefs that they already have about me. And I think that living a life like that really just sets a person, at least it set me up to be like this empty shell of a person. I looked really great on paper and I had some really great qualities. And I don't think that there's anybody other than the people that I like deliberately heard or was a dick to, you know, most of the people that I wanted to be in my life um, would tell you from that time that I was a, this, you know, great person. I was fun. I was funny. I was smart. I, you know, it was inspirational. I, I did all these things, but the whole time it was all just me trying to be those things, trying really hard to be something that I thought people wanted me to be, or that I wanted people to think that I was. And that's really what it was like to be me. And I said it in my book and I've said it, I think on every stage I've ever stood on, you know, one of the most profound things that I ever heard in a lead at a, at a meeting was, the worst prison was the one that I created based on what I think you think of me. And that's really where I lived. My whole life was this prison that I created and then just kind of like juggled the balls to keep this side looking this way and this side looking this way and the front side looking a different way. And that's really who I was. I don't know about you, but when I discovered also states, the first time I got drunk, I didn't like it. It was too heavy. There was three things I remember about that first drunk. One is what it tastes like going down, what it tastes like coming back up, and the smell of a stinky toilet, right? Because it was a winter storm, late 70s winter storm, and my cousin had come over, and we found my dad's cutty sark. And, you know, I didn't know. Poured a big glass. I didn't like it, and I just didn't want to do that. Now, there were other substances that kind of made me feel like I belonged, I think. There was a socio tribe, and I think more than anything for me, belonging 
to a group of people that used guys who were musicians, right? That you know would smoke weed, hang out, play guitar, try to tune for four hours straight. You know what I mean? <laughs> and really, it was there weren't electronic tuners back then. But in your early miles of of using. What was that like for you when you when you first discovered? Because for for me it was there were three stages. This is fun. Uh oh, what just happened? And me down on my knees, please help me. There was that was it. If you sum up my whole my using career, you know, oh this is fun. Uh oh, uh, what just happened? Popo showed up. You know what I mean? Uh, where's my money? And then at St. Thomas Hospital, that's where it kind of broke down. But what was it like for you in, in the first miles of using? So the first time that I ever drank to drink, right? Because I'm sure I had sips of my parents' beer or something when I was, you know, young. But I was, I think, twelve or thirteen. Um, we were at, I was at a, a party with my parents. Like it was a, their, my parents were friends with her parents, and she graduated or something. I was at this party, and there was a whole group of us, and those kids that lived there stole like a six pack, and everyone split it. So everybody, there were six of us, I think, and we all split it. And then after that, they were like kind of done. It was like, haha, we have this beer. And I must have liked it because I kept going back for more. Like I kept sneaking back to the kitchen, taking more, taking more um, until ultimately I think I wound up in a closet. I was just laying in a closet drinking, <laughs> like literally drinking in the closet by myself. First time I ever drank. I, my friends were like, oh, your parents are coming. So they were trying to get me to like drink some mouthwash. So I didn't smell like beer, but I was like, I couldn't even walk without help. And then that night was actually the, the first time that I ever um, got drunk. It was also the first experience I had with a sexual assault. So there was trauma. I think I vomited that night. I don't remember. It was just trauma all the way around. But I remember the next day, the thing that I actually felt the worst about was the parents of my friend whose house it was and that I had to call them and apologize to them for my behavior because I was drinking. Nobody knew what had happened. So, and I remember my parents being like disappointed, but I also remember just being in the car, like, what time is it? Where are we going? And my parents are like, <laughs> right. go, you know, go to sleep. That whole period of my life, I feel like I, I, I have real selective memory about because um, my, my mother told me, you know, years later that they remember like finding just massive amounts of beer cans under my bed. And like, I lived with my mother and stepfather who were not negligent parents. They were not like absent. They didn't drink. They always had some beer in the refrigerator, like from the 4th of July party three months ago or from Christmas when we had people over, but they never really drank it. So apparently I was sneaking in there and taking one or two every night right, right, and right. drinking it and then throwing the can under my bed. I don't know what my intention was. Like, I don't know how I thought I was going to get rid of them, but right. We don't think. I have. So you were a black, so, you were a blackout um, drinker, yeah. blackout drinker right away. I, apparently. Yeah, yeah. Apparently I was. Yeah. yeah. And then, so this is the interesting thing though. We moved my parents, my mother and stepfather moved me from New Jersey to Pennsylvania to a really rural area of Pennsylvania. So I went from like just outside of New York City where I could ride my bike into New York City to literally people who are driving 45 minutes to school, rural Pennsylvania. So um, I was 14. So it was a little bit traumatic for me, but my stepfather was a really, really, really strict man, like unreasonably so. And even in retrospect, I think it was unreasonable. 
but he basically accused me and assumed that I was drinking and doing drugs all the time, even when I wasn't. Despite my good grades, despite the fact that I was like the good friend, I was really afraid of getting in trouble. And so while I was in high school, when all of my friends started drinking, I told them that I was allergic to alcohol, that I broke out in a really bad rash because I didn't want them to think badly of me because I couldn't, because I was afraid to drink because I was afraid my parents would, I don't know what I was afraid they would kill me. I have no idea, but I was afraid of them. And so I just told my friends I was allergic to alcohol, so I couldn't drink. So that was, so naturally, you know, smoking pot became the next best thing. And then, you know, doing a lot of hallucinogens and things that you couldn't smell on me and that I couldn't necessarily get. I like to relate back to, you know, that first moment where I felt like, wait a minute, wait a minute, there's a problem here. There's really a problem here. And for me, it was, I was living in LA. I was, had a sort of a blooming career as a studio musician. And um, I discovered uh, cocaine. Oh, oh, I like that, you know? And of course, anybody that's done cocaine will tell you that it's never as good as the first line. It's just the rest of the the time is just really ridiculous. But I remember a friend of mine let me watch his place and he had an eight ball. And uh, I remember that I couldn't stop sneaking back into his house to get more. And I kept saying to myself, dude, this is wrong. And I didn't really want it then, but I couldn't stop. And that's the very first time I came home and I told um, my, my girlfriend at the time, I think there's a problem here because I just robbed somebody to get drugs. That was really where I realized, hey, dude, you probably, you know, have crossed over a new bridge here, a new bridge. But again, you know, because of me being able to want to handle it and I can handle it, right? Because, you know, I know. And that's the problem with the addicts and alcoholics, right? It's I, me, my, right? I think I'm going to fix it. If I just do this, right? If I just quit drinking beer, if I just try wine, or if I only drink on Tuesdays and not Friday or, you know, Saturday I'll drink, but I won't get the big one. I'll just drink the little one. And then Sunday I won't drink at all. I won't drink at all. Right. Cause that's where I ended up. But what was it for you when you started to realize, uh Oh, there's, there's a problem here. Where was that moment? Hindsight's 2020, right? The moment that I realized there was a problem was way, way past the point where it was a problem. I just spent lots of time surrounding myself with people who I felt were worse than I was. And again, I think I did that subconsciously, but if I could point to how bad they were, then I was never as bad. So, you know, uh, all through college, you know, I was drinking a ton and doing a ton of drugs and, but I was still maintaining my grades. I wound up getting accepted to medical school. So how really, how bad could I have been? Um, when my friends were dropping out or the ones that were doing well weren't doing any drugs. Or, so it was just sort of like surrounding myself with the comparative people. So it wasn't until I was in medical school and no, it was probably the end of the second year. But I remember that I was with my boyfriend at the time and we were doing a lot of opiates, uh, mostly pills. That was what was available. And this was the time when Oxycontin still made the 160s. So we, we could get those. So you'd crush up and snort a 160. And I didn't know anything about dope sickness. I didn't know anything about opiate withdrawal at the time, even though I was in medical school because they don't teach you anything about addiction. So I didn't know anything about it. I just remember like several weeks of like 
nights where I'm like, man, I feel like I'm getting the flu. Like, I don't feel well. I'm not going to go to work. I'm not going to go into my rotation or I feel sick. And my, my boyfriend did because he had been to rehab, but he never really said anything to me. Then the one night he was like, uh, I think if we just can get some pills, we'll feel better. And I was like, what? All right, fine. So we did. And then, and then I took the pill and I felt like instantly better. And that was the moment I realized like, this is not a good thing. Um, and then of course it was like immediate progression to heroin because it was cheaper and yeah, it was pretty rapid from there. It's what I call the circling down the drain moment. And for me, that was day drinking, right? When I knew, when I would get up at 4.30 in the morning and wait for the Sunoco to open at the end of the street so I could go down there and, and get the big, great big bottle of Magnum red so I could probably throw up most of it just so I could get drunk, you know? And I, would, I had all these great stories about, oh yeah, no, I, I was working all night, you know what I mean? And those lies. And then eventually I ended up in St. Thomas. So at some point you definitely decided to get treatment. And it's really well described in your book. And, you know, we want to get back around to that so that we make sure that we, we let our listeners know about that book because I think it's really super important. It's probably one of the best things I've read that can explain to me as a recovering alcoholic addict and to anyone who is concerned that they may have one in their life about what's going on. Because it's very clear. We all get a lot of questions of, you know, hey, my son, hey, my daughter, hey, my husband. How do I know? How do I know? And I always recommend your book is like, you know what, take the time to read this and it will certainly help explain to you the disease model of what addiction is. And because unfortunately a lot of physicians, although I haven't encountered a lot of them in my practice, there are still, and I hear about them, there are physicians out there that don't believe that that, that is in fact the case. So circling down the drain, you head into some sort of treatment center you know, obviously, you know, as you described in the book, you have that moment of awareness after after a little while. You know, you you get through the fuck you, Tony. It's not me. It's not me. Um, not me. I, I know. I know. It's not me. And then you start to having that what I call the spiritual change, which happened for me on the seventh floor at St. Thomas, which you know we can talk about someday, but not here. So you get it. You get out, right? And you're kind of clean. And you're, you know, maybe even feeling a little bit better at that time, if you can feel better. Tell me about the first few miles, because what I, I think that a lot of people don't hear about is what happens to us in those first few miles once we're sober and we're really trying to get it straight. And the changes we have to go through when we're confronting all the other shit that's going on in our life. Yeah, we may be sober, but it's still messed up. So talk to me a little bit about what that was like for you. The first year, really, after rehab was a lot of struggle for me. Um, and if I wasn't already sort of in medical school and involved with monitoring agencies and at risk of like getting kicked out of school and not being able to be a doctor, I probably would have relapsed in that year. And for all intents and purposes, I did emotionally relapse. I mean, and so what I mean is really, it's like, you know, I put down the drugs and alcohol, but those were my coping skills, mm. right? That was how I was dealing with life. And then they were just kind of ripped away from me. Right. And I got like, you know, a couple of months in a, in a rehab where they were trying to teach me new skills, but they're trying to teach me new skills on this brain. That's like all wonky because again, you took all the chemicals away. 
So I'm trying to learn some new skills, right? But right. the deep dive stuff, the stuff where you re- where I really had to start looking at myself didn't come until much later. And so a lot of my sort of the characteristics that I had had that sort of led me to become addicted and alcoholic were still there. And so like that need to create an image and that illusion creating, like I still had that, but it was just, I was sort of subconsciously gearing it for good instead of evil. So like I would go to AA meetings because that was a requirement. I'd hear something really great and insightful that someone shared. And then I would take that to the next meeting and I would share it as my own. And so within a few months, you know, I once again was sort of like this, like, Oh, she really gets Mm -hmm. it. She, you know, only a few months clean and she's really getting it. And, you know, I was eating that up because that's what I wanted. I want people to see me a certain way. And, but wasn't really internalizing any of the things that I was saying. Like I was intellectually understanding what they were saying, but I wasn't internally feeling anything that they were saying. And so I wasn't doing any of the work. I, I really was fake, like fake it till you make it, but I wasn't intentionally doing that. I was just faking it because that's the only thing I knew how to do. That was the only skill that I really had. So again, I was struck with this sense of imposter syndrome, feeling like um, this you know, very early in recovery, but very well-versed and knowledgeable person about recovery. And they don't know, they don't know how up I am inside. And, you know, so my, so I, I had no release for that other than to act out. And I acted out in ways other than using drugs, but, you know, I would go to the bar and just sit there and wait until last call and then see who I could go home with. You know, I wouldn't drink, but but it was like, well, these are, this is easy pickings here. You know what I mean? Just find the sloppiest person. Like, and then, and then cry about how they don't you know, want me to stay or like, you know, I'm like, Listen, there's nothing here. Right. There's nothing between us. But then they're like, okay, see. And I'm like, what? So, I mean, I was just, I was just a wreck. I traded exercise. I was, I remember it was walking for me, walking, walking. I just, I just, every day I walk on. I was down at Sand Run Parkway every day doing six miles. And, and if I do this, but you know, I, just, I really didn't have any coping skills. And, and for me, I did. I, I had this cognitive memory thing where I just couldn't remember things. My brain wasn't connecting things. I was still working in the in the corporate world, pretty fancy executive wearing a suit. And I, if you put me under stress, it was all gone. Everything was gone. I remember having a conversation with. A person that was assisting me at the time and, and they said to me, Mr. Shannon, are you where you just called me 20 minutes ago to ask me these questions? And I wasn't. I wasn't aware that that had happened. I was holding on. But I will tell you that there's three things for me that are super, super important about recovery. Number one is don't use. Don't do it. Today, just number one, don't f-ing use. And number two is find your tribe. You have got to find, whether it's in a 12-step group or, you know, the, the, a local church, a coffee shop, you have got to find people that are like you going through what you guys, you know, and I tell people this story about, you know, when I was a young guitar player, I wanted to hang out with the badasses, you know, the older guys who had the Les Pauls and the amps and the gigs, you know, and recovery is like the same thing. You have got to find those people that got it and hang out with them and steal all their shit, steal all their licks, you know? And finally, for me, you know, once I got a clear head and I got past that that year 
you know, is finding some way to, to have a higher purpose. And you talk about that a lot in your book. And one of the things I really like about what you say in your book is a lot of people have trouble with the God thing. So much so that I haven't even approached it on this podcast. And we're probably on our, almost our 20th episode at this point. I don't talk about it. But what you say in that book, which is really great, is, you know, what, what if it was, you know, you substitute that higher power thing? What if it's just a higher purpose? What if it's a higher purpose? And that really, really struck me when I was rereading last night your book. So you get through the first few miles, you're out there. I have no idea how you got through medical school doing that stuff, man. I mean, how did you remember shit? How could you remember anything? How did you stop? <laughs> how did you do that stuff? You know, that's crazy. That's crazy to me. I almost feel guilty like telling people because I'm like, oh, they're not going to have any faith in me as a physician. But the, the truth is, like, I don't remember. You know, I we know that the, the brain works in such a way that like the way that you are when you're studying is the way that you are most prepared to take a test. So obviously I was used, I was high using just to feel normal. Right. So I had to use to study. Right. So when I would take the exams, I, I had to be, I mean, I had to be, I was so physically sick without it that I just, there was no choice. So we call it altered reality, right? Because I think that's it. It just shifts reality. So that's going to cause a lot of problems when you're trying to like interact with the world. But in terms of just like learning information, a shifted reality doesn't matter. Right. So I just shifted it, learned it in that reality and then took the test in that same reality. I, I mean, that's the only way I can explain it. That I, The really fucked up part, though, is that I passed all of the major boards that I needed to. Um, and at the time, they weren't on computer, which they are now. So we had to sit down in this room, like at a bunch of desks with paper and like fill in the bubble, the Scantron type thing. I had to get some dope and my, my needles and stuff and store them like in my bra so that when I went to the bathroom during break time, like I could use and not have to worry about getting really sick. But once I went to treatment and then I went back to try and finish school, the dean of my school, you know, God bless her um, for all of her flaws. She did sort of allow me to do that. You know, I could tell she really wanted to make me have to like start all over because I, I didn't remember a lot of what I had done previously, but she couldn't because I had passed all of the national boards. We're circling towards the finish, and I, I just, you know, I mean, I, I had so many notes. I mean, highlighted and shit. I mean, I was like, I was so looking forward to talking to you, and, and there's so much more I want to talk to you about things, and, and especially about the book, and maybe someday we can, you, you can come back. I know you're very, very busy. It was difficult to get your time here, and I super appreciate you doing that. But maybe we could do another podcast just about the book and talk and walk through that, because I... I I really believe that it's such a significant, important piece of work that anybody that is really has questions or is beginning it really needs to understand that we fundamentally have a medical problem first. It is a medical problem we have to solve. You know, and then once we get that, then we can start what I call getting underneath the manhole cover and fixing the shit in our lives. You know what I mean? But you have to get into a long-term period of abstinence. There's just no other way. And I, I say this to people and they're like, well, you know, I can, you know, I, I think I'm good with weed. I can just smoke a little bit of weed. You know what I mean? And I'll be okay because it may, takes the edge off, dude. And I can play better. You know what I mean? I can do my, and I just say, yeah, that doesn't work. It just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. So it's controversial, but, and I know that there's other ways to do things and there's no one way that fits all for everybody. There's MAT, there's all kinds of different things which you cover in your book so eloquently, you know, 
But I guess the last thing I want to talk to you about, and, and you know, I think about this a lot. At this time of year, when we're recording this, we're in the middle of January, and in my past life, you know, I would be at a really big trade show, the National Association of Music Merchants, which was the big show for us. You put on a suit and you see all your customers, and it was just a party fest. And I, I remember that when I just got sober, uh, I had been let go from one company, and I had to go out there and try and manage being in that environment and being sober. And it was, uh, I was sitting upstairs meditating a little bit earlier today, thinking, man, you know what? It's seven years down the road, and you're still here. And guess what? You get to interview Dr. Nicole Labor today. So it was really a cool moment for me. And I, I wanted to just share that with you that I felt such gratitude to be able to be here and be sober and to be able to be talking to you today. So, I mean, the last question I want to ask you, and people ask me this all the time, is you go back, you know, and talk to yourself, you know, when you're all up and stuff. And, you know, if, I like to say, if you could find a time travel Uber, right? <laughs> and you could call that shit and say, hey, um, yeah, take me back to when I was that person, right? What would you say to that person about your life now? I would opt not to do that at all. I would opt not to go. Uh, my fear is that anything I say could um, alter the path to where I am now. And I wouldn't want to do that. I wouldn't want to alter that path. There is a part of me that truly believes that my gift is not that I'm super smart. My gift is not that I really understand addiction. My gift is not that I am in recovery. Um, the gift that I have is the ability to communicate or convey information, which is why I was so good at creating those illusions. And so using that skill to help other people understand something that is so poorly understood, that's my purpose. That's my higher purpose. Right. So, and the only way that I was ever going to reach this point to be able to use that gift in such a way that would be of most benefit to society was if I went through all of the things that I went through. The fact that I came out the other side, that I'm alive, that I am, um, you know, clean and sober today, that I have a relationship with my higher power, my higher purpose, um, and then I have the ability to share that gift, it's the one area of my life I don't feel like an imposter. So you can keep your time travel Uber. <laughs> I, might, I might go back to college and encourage some breakups and like some relationships that were like not great, but That's nothing bad. about my. That's, that's, you're such a super badass. Uh, thank you so much for your time today. And I just want to say to our listeners, you know, thanks for hanging with us for this edition of Recovery Talks, the podcast. Please stay tuned for more episodes with more guests as they share their journey from the darkness to light. And until then, everybody just stay standing and steady on.